Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study of God's word this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. Opportunity to focus your attention, divest your mind of the distractions of things that have gone on this last week or things that are going to happen tomorrow, to be ready to focus, concentrate on the study of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that we have the privilege, the opportunity to gather together to study your word. What a tremendous benefit and blessing it is for us to have your completed canon of scripture. That you have indeed given us all the information we need in order to face any and every crisis, trial, affliction, adversity in life. That in your grace you have supplied everything for us. You have not only given us your word, but you have given us the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who fills us, who reminds us of your word for application, and who gives us the ability and the power to live in such a way that you are glorified. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would use the things that we study to encourage us, to instruct us, to challenge us, that we may be able to advance and grow and mature as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. While you're opening your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, I'll fill you in on an email I received this afternoon from Igor Smolensk. Igor is one of the missionaries that we uh, pray for on our list. He was a student in Jim Meyer's school there in Kiev and finished his training this last December and left to go to a a smaller town of a couple of hundred thousand just outside of Kiev, about 150 miles. This is his hometown, and he went there with his wife and two small children, one who just a few months old and the other is just a couple of years old. And they were had no contacts. They were just going to go start evangelizing, meet some different pastors, go to different churches, and hopefully get involved in some kind of a ministry to plant churches, train leaders, and in evangelism. And the Lord has opened some doors. Earlier we were praying for his daughter. Her health is fine. He reported that the children are in fine health right now. And he went on to say that he's had some tremendous opportunities to teach. He's been invited to speak in a couple of different churches there. And the pastors were quite impressed with his knowledge of the Word of God. And that is just due to the grace of God. And one pastor said, we have been praying for uh, many months that God would uh, enable us to provide a teacher for us that we could uh, get into a more in-depth study of the Word. And he has ten men in his church ready for an in-depth study of the Word. And so Eager is going to begin a Bible study with them and begin to take them through uh, Charles Ryrie's Basic Theology, which is sort of an intermediate uh, basic theology book. Dr. Ryrie was head of the Systematic Theology Department at Dallas Seminary for many years, one of my professors, and so that is very solid theology. So we can continue to pray for Eager and thank God for those opportunities that he is providing him. 
Now this week we're continuing our study in Revelation chapter 2. We're down to verse 9. This is the letter to the church at Smyrna. It's often referred to as Smyrna, the persecuted church. And it is because they are the, the point of this very short critical evaluation or critique of the church at Smyrna focuses on the fact that they are to expect adversity. They have gone through adversity, and yet there will be even more adversity in their life and an intensification of the adversity and persecution that would indeed cost many of them their very lives. Last week we worked through part of the center section of this in verses 8 through 10, and we need to come back and just do some review on verse 9. I've been struggling with my own minor level. You know, it's always the minor stuff that aggravates you. The minor level of, of adversity in that I've gone through trials and tribulations with my spectacles during the last two or three weeks. I had a pair that disappeared one night on the way to class, and then I got another pair. So I've been struggling with just reading glasses. And then the other night I, I got a... I guess it was Tuesday, got a new pair. But the focal point on the new pair is right about here. And when I have my reading glasses on, they half the time I can't see my notes. I have to take the reading glasses off, so I felt like I've just been as disorganized. I skip things in the notes and don't see things. And, and uh, it's going to be about two more weeks before they have the new set in. And I went back in after... The episode Thursday night, I went in on Friday, I said I got up in the pulpit, hadn't even had them on, and I looked down at my notes and I couldn't read them. I still can't. I bend over. And they looked at it and they said, well, they forgot that you're so tall. They've got those things set at a 12-inch focal range and they ought to be at a 16 to 24-inch focal range. So such is life. So we just press on. Revelation 2.8 is written to the... Church in Smyrna. Let's just read through these opening verses to make sure we are in context. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write these things, says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. The emphasis here in these titles is on, number one, the eternality of Jesus Christ. His omniscience and omnipotence is part of the his attribute of Infinity that's applied to knowledge, applied to his presence, applied to his power. It is a reminder to the church as he deals with the fact that they're going to go through this intensification of persecution, that he is the one who is always present no matter what they go through, no matter what assaults the church may face. He will endure, they will endure, Christianity will not fall. He was the one who was dead and came to life, a reminder that he is one who has gone through everything that we go through. He is the one who has gone through many, every category of suffering, every, every category of testing, yet without sin. So he has, even to the point of physical death, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. And the reminder there is that if Jesus Christ solved the greatest problem that you and I will ever face then he can solve every other problem, including being arrested, tortured, uh, thrown in prison, and then have your life taken in some horrible manner. The church at Smyrna is located on the Gulf of Smyrna. As you see on the map on the overhead, it is located just some uh, 35 miles north of Ephesus, right here at the base of the Gulf of Smyrna. Smyrna never, at this stage, Smyrna did not have a strong congregation such as the, or a large congregation such as at Ephesus or some of the other places, and that was due to the persecution that was going on in Smyrna. Verse 9 we read, I know your works. This should be translated, I know your production. I know your production, even your tribulation, and we would prefer to understand that word tribulation as adversity. Adversity, this is the Greek word flipsis, which means to crush, to press, to compress, or to squeeze. It has to do with that 
outside pressure of adversity in the soul that comes through the negative uh, circumstances and situations that we encounter in life. This can run the gamut from anything that is somewhat of an, of an aggravation to that which is a, of serious consequence. And it relates to all the adversity we face living in the cosmic system. I know your production, even your adversity and poverty, and those are linked together. The word that was translated poverty there is the Greek word tokea, which has to do with abject poverty. It is not the word for simply being poor. It is the word indicating they had lost everything. And that is related to the persecution that had been going on for a number of years under the reign of Emperor Domitian, beginning about 85 A.D. through 95 A.D. There had been these series of persecutions, and a number of believers lost their life and were martyred. So he says, I know your production, even your adversity and poverty, but you are rich. And there is a reminder that every believer is rich in the resources that God has provided us at the instant of salvation. Paul said we were blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. We have been given everything. And so there is no situation, there's no difficulty, there's no heartache, there's no problem. No matter how horrible the circumstances may be, God the Father knew about, about those circumstances in eternity past and made perfect provision. So we are rich not in the necessarily in the details of life, but we are rich in what matters, and that is what God has provided for us in the spiritual realm. And then he goes on to say, And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now this brings up a second category of adversity or opposition they face. They face two areas of opposition as we went over last week. One came from the Gentiles, that Smyrna had been a center of worship of Rome since 190 B.C. That was when they erected their first temple to the goddess of Rome or their worship of Rome. And then as the republic shifted to the empire, and as the Caesars began to develop the worship of Caesar, then they began to uh, worship Caesar, and they, by uh, 25 A.D., they had erected uh, two more temples to the worship of Caesar. And under Domitian, there was a law that you had to come to the temple and you had to offer incense once a year to Caesar and swear that Caesar was Lord. And this is a theological statement that the government is God. And if you did not do that, then the penalty was death. And you were given, you'd be given a certificate every year, which showed that you had affirmed your loyalty to the state. And if you did not have that certificate, then you would uh, possibly forfeit your life. Now, that was the first source of persecution. Now, if you think about that, uh, we don't face persecution in such a way today, but let me tell you, if you start truly taking a stand for the truth of the Word of God in this culture, just wait a little while, and you'll start feeling that adversity. You think of the stand that Judge Roy Moore took on holding, on having the statue of the Ten Commandments in the uh, state Supreme Court building, and the state of Alabama, and I encourage you to read his book. It's quite illuminating. I think he has some, some good points. But here's a man who lost his position and was uh, ridiculed and run down the line by, uh, by friends he had known for years and by many in the legislation, legislative system and judicial system in the state of Alabama and throughout this country because of his stand for the eternal truth of God's Word, that all law is ultimately grounded in something that's absolute. If it's not, it's not, uh, it's, it's not worth having. And so he emphasized the, both the uh, religious and the historical importance of the Ten Commandments to this nation and suffered for that. 
as, as a result. So we need to recognize that when we take a stand for the Word, wherever it is, when we're in our in business, when we are in the workplace, and there are policies and procedures that are being imposed upon us that are contrary to the Word of God, uh, most people would rather not give, lose their job, so they just quietly say nothing. And then as time goes by, things get worse and other policies get enacted. And before long, you're in a position where you feel like you've compromised certain values. So it's important to take a stand when you can, and you may even lose your job over it. You may not lose your life, as these believers did, but you may lose other things. You may lose friends. You may lose opportunities, business opportunities, simply because uh, you're going to take a stand for the truth of God's Word. And that's what happened there. They were uh, under assault, not only from the pagan Gentiles, the Romans, but also from the Jews. And so the, the, uh, the Lord says to them, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And the reason it is designated a blasphemy is because they were rejecting the claims of deity of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And they claim to be Jews but are not. Now, some people think that means that these were Gentiles who were masquerading as Jews, but that's not what this means. This is referring to the fact that a true Jew is not simply a Jew outwardly in terms of his physical descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but is one who is a Jew inwardly. And this is demonstrated in Romans 2, 28 and 29, where Paul says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart by means of the Spirit, literally, not in the Spirit, but by means of the Spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So Paul draws a distinction between the physical Jew and the true Jew, and and true Jewishness is based on regeneration. It's not based simply on physical descent. You can have someone who is an ethnic Jew, but that does not mean they are a true Jew. True Jewishness was based on regeneration because the Jewish race was grounded on regeneration. Abraham was regenerate. Isaac was regenerate. Jacob was regenerate. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the patriarchs of the Jewish race. And you're not a Jew if you're simply a descendant of Abraham. Many Arabs are descendants of Abraham, but that does not make them a Jew. You're not a Jew if you're a descendant of Abraham and Isaac. You're only a Jew if you're a descendant, I mean an ethnic Jew, if you're a descendant from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you are not a true Jew unless you follow in the footsteps of Abraham in terms of his faith, his trust in God, and his belief, in, which resulted in his justification. So in the church age, Jews are not true Jews. They're not part of the remnant, as Paul says in Romans 11:5, unless they have put their faith alone in Christ alone. So apparently the Jews in this synagogue were operating on arrogance, and they were assuming that they were the remnant. And what... The Lord is saying here is, no, they're not the remnant. They're not even saved. They are, in fact, a synagogue of Satan. They are serving Satan's purposes. That does not mean that they were uh, devil worshipers. It doesn't mean that they were Satanists in the overt sense of uh, overtly practicing uh, occult ritual or occult practices. But what we see here is the Scripture clearly recognizes that anyone... And any organization that is not operating on biblical truth is operating on human viewpoint and is operating on false doctrine. And thus, when they're in falsehood, they become a tool of Satan within the cosmic system. Satan is the architect of the cosmic system, which is an organized system of thought that is in opposition to the divine viewpoint that is expressed in Scripture. And divine viewpoint is expressed in Scripture for the individual. 
Now, listen carefully. For the individual begins with regeneration. Now, if you're an unbeliever, you can recognize a certain amount of validity in some of the things in Scripture. You can recognize the morality that underlies a lot of the Mosaic law and some of the principles in the New Testament. But it's still human good, and and really the unbeliever, because he's not regenerate, is simply taking biblical truth selectively, and he is absorbing that and bringing that into his own system of thought. And that's something we always have to be careful of. In fact, I was talking with somebody this last week, and we were discussing something. I said, you know, we always have to be careful that we don't read certain people in certain books or watch certain television shows or personalities and interpret what they say in light of our own frame of reference. And we're all guilty of that. We want people to be basically right and in agreement with us. And so you'll pick up a book by somebody and you'll read them. And instead of reading what they say within their framework, you say, well, they talked about God and they talked about, they quoted some Bible verses. And so they must be uh, positive. They must be oriented to the truth, and they may not be at all. There's all kinds of false teachers and false religions that quote all kinds of Bible verses. There's even some fairly decent seminaries and fairly decent uh, people who are believers and who have some knowledge who quote a lot of verses, but they're out of context. So we always have to be very careful just because you take a lot of Bible verses and Velcro them to some position doesn't mean that position is biblical. You know, a good case in point is this new show that many series that came out this last week on Revelations. And they're not talking about the book of Revelations when they didn't make a mistake in adding an S to the end of it. They're, because what, what happens within this apocalyptic uh, series is a view of the end of the, what they call the end of days, which incidentally they keep talking about the Bible says the end of days. That phrase is never used in the Bible. And they quote a lot of scripture. And I was watching somebody interviewed on a show the other night, and they talked about the fact that, well, there's a lot of scripture quoted here. And I sat there with my Bible the other night when I watched that show, and they didn't quote a single verse in context, and they didn't have a single implication from any verse that had anything to do with what the original context of that verse had. But that will deceive and distract and confuse untold millions of people into thinking that somehow the things that are happening or things that are depicted in this television show have something to do with biblical prophecy. And to make things even more confusing for a lot of believers is that in the, in the interview the other night, they interviewed the writers of the show and the producer, and they both talked about how they had read Hal Lindsey's book, Late Great Planet Earth, when they were young men and how that had influenced them. Well, they didn't understand anything about it because they just, they're basically inventing their own apocalyptic scenario with a lot of uh, biblical terminology thrown in. So we have to recognize that the Bible has what many people in our world would say just an overly simplistic view. It's either from God or it's from Satan. Those are the only two options. Now, if it's from Satan, it may have multiple dimensions. You have things from Satan that are extremely uh, legalistic, moralistic, very exclusivistic. On the one hand, on the other hand, you have other religions that come along and are very broad and very open and everybody's going to be saved and everybody's good and everybody's wonderful because Satan doesn't have to restrict himself to one lie. In fact, if you look at the Scripture, Satan only speaks three times in the Bible. He speaks for the first time in Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, he tells a lie about God to man. The next time Satan speaks in the Scripture is in Job chapter 1. And in Job chapter 1, he's talking to God, and he tells a lie to God about man. And then the next time he speaks in Scripture is in Matthew chapter 4, when he is tempting the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness, and there he lies to the God-man. And this is why in uh, the Gospel of John, John chapter 8, Jesus refers to the devil is the father of lies. 
He is a liar from the beginning. And he accused the Pharisees of being from their, from their father, the devil. So you only have two systems in, in the world. You're either operating in a divine viewpoint or biblical viewpoint system based on regeneration, in which case that you are operating on God's truth, or you're operating on some sort of false system, which is a production of the cosmic system, and at the head of the cosmic system is Satan. So it doesn't matter whether you are on one extreme and you're promoting uh, overt Satanism or occultism, or you're at the other end of the spectrum where you're promoting some sort of very moralistic, a quasi-biblical view of life. One is just as bad as the other. Now, let me give you an example, just occurred to me, of how this plays itself out in terms of current debate and current discussion. very popular series of children's books came out a few years ago on uh, Harry Potter. And Harry Potter, of course, is a young wizard in training. And when that came out, there was a lot of discussion among Christians. And I read two or three book reviews on each side of the issue. There were some that came out and said, no, this isn't real, anything occult. It's just fantasy. It's just make-believe. And then there were others that came out and said, oh, it's all it's all evil. You shouldn't let your children read the books. You shouldn't let them watch the movies. And because all this does is promote an occultic mentality or an openness to the occult. And after reading through the first three or four Harry Potter books, because I wanted to make sure I really had an understanding of it. They were, uh, they were fun and they were well written. And I've always, you know, some people just don't like fantasy. I've always enjoyed fantasy make-believe stories. I loved reading the old uh, Grimm's fairy tales when I was a kid. And golly, I never thought that any of that was real. It never seemed to force me into thinking that uh, witches or goblins or elves or any of that was, was real. It was just, this is just make-believe. It's a product of the creative thinking of the unbelieving world. Now, I don't know whether they were believers or not, but it's, it, it represents the production of the, the cosmic system. And within the cosmic system, you have all kinds of production in art. You have theater, you have movies, you have fiction, you have nonfiction, and everything that is produced by any human being represents a worldview. Let's go a step further. Everything that is produced by human beings represents either a biblical worldview or the cosmic system. That's just the way it is. Whether you're watching some innocuous Pollyanna movie produced by Disney or whether you are watching some sort of overt, occult, uh, Satanist-promoting, extreme uh, movie or something of that nature, they both represent cosmic thinking. Remember that movie Pollyanna? And uh, I can't remember, was it who played the, the priest there? It was like a Methodist priest or Episcopal pastor or Lutheran. And, uh, and he had just as liberal a view of theology as you can get. Very moralistic, but not biblical. Well, who's to say that's less dangerous and less evil than overt Satanism? So don't come along and say, well, let's take Harry Potter movies and Star Wars movies or whatever and say we can't let our children go there because they're presenting overt evil. Well, we'll let them go over here and watch Pollyanna because that's subtle, covert evil. I mean, that's just ridiculous. So we have to recognize the fact that everything creative that comes out of that comes from unbelievers or even believers represents one of two views. And so, when you're watching t- anything on television, when you're reading any work of fiction, when you're watching any movie or going to any musical or play or drama, you have to recognize that that it's saying something about the world and it's saying something about man's condition that is either going to be biblical or non-biblical. Just the way it is. And so you have to think, as, a, as someone who's watching this, you have to always have your filters up so that you don't become unduly influenced and directed. And you just have to teach your children that. 
because that's the way it is when you live in the devil's world, that he is behind a system that is constantly promoting a whole range of ideas, many of which are cloaked in biblically-sounding terminology that are just designed to deceive and distract uh, and defeat many believers in their Christian life. And that's what's going on here, is that these Jews who are moral people, there wasn't a... I mean, these are not evil, uh, human-sacrificing pagans. They're not like the, like the Romans and their, their worships of Dionysius and Bacchus and Sibylle and the Sibylle Addis cult and some of those things. That would be on the... We would consider that on the horrendous end of the spectrum. But what we have here are a series of very moralistic, Old Testament law-abiding Jews who've rejected Christ as their Messiah. And so they are designated by the Lord Jesus Christ as of the synagogue of Satan. This is not how to win friends and influence people. Let's go to verse 10. Verse 10, we're introduced to the fact that they are about to suffer. They are about to go through some adversity. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Fear should not be a characteristic of the believer's mindset. No matter what you may be anticipating, you have to rely on promises such as Isaiah 41.10, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yeah, I will help thee. Yeah, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Now, that promise in context was given to the Jews in reference to the adversity that they were facing during the uh, Babylonian captivity when they were out of the land and when they were uh, living in Babylon and when they were having to deal with a lot of anti-Semitism and a lot of opposition to Jews as Jews when they were uh, in captivity. So the command is, do not fear the things which you are about to suffer. And the word there for suffer is the uh, present active infinitive aposco, which simply has to do with uh, either physical suffering or it can deal with mental suffering or anxiety. It covers a range of things. Now, in a conversation I had recently, somebody said, you know, I have a little problem with that word suffer whenever I hear the word suffer, I always think that uh, somebody sitting around and kind of in self-pity talking about, oh, I'm just going through all this suffering. And that clued me into two things. First of all, we always have to recognize that you never know how people hear what you say. You never know how people hear what you say. Here was somebody who's a close friend I've known for many years, is biblically squared away, a solid student of the Word. And when he, just because of his background, his training, whatever it may be, when he hears the word suffer, he has that kind of mentality. But that's not the, the, the idea that is inherent within the word in the Scripture. Maybe it's a connotation he picked up from the English, but that's not what Scripture says. And it just reminded me of the principle that we always have to be a cognizant of how people are hearing us, the words we use. Are, do they really hear us? Do they really listen uh, to what we're saying? And that related to another aspect that, of thinking that I've had in recent years. When we teach the Word of God as pastors, I am convinced that we have to follow a principle that is really embedded in the Scripture, and that is to juxtapose what the Word of God says to whatever is going on in pagan culture or the surrounding culture around us. The Bible does that. It doesn't come out and just browbeat it, but it does that. You read through the Mosaic Law, and there are all these little laws about the priests shouldn't cut the corners of their beards. Now, why is that important? Because this was a pagan practice. If you're not familiar with the Canaanite culture that surrounded the Jews, you don't really understand the significance of a lot of, the, a lot of these laws. And yet they have this polemical background where God is saying, you're not going to act like and, and absorb the religious practices and presuppositions of the culture around you. When Jesus taught to the Jews, he frequently used the formula, you have heard it said, but I say. See, what Jesus is saying is he talks about this is how you think. Now, I'm going to correct your thinking. 
He doesn't just come in and teach people simply what the truth is. He juxtaposes that by contrast to the things that he knows they've picked up over time, the sort of popular religious ideas, the teaching of the Pharisees, because that's how we learn. We often learn things better by seeing the truth in contrast to the subtle distortions and errors that, that we've heard rather than just hearing the truth taught. And that is just being as a teacher, just being aware of your audience. See, this is what missionaries do. If you are going to be trained to be a missionary to Bangladesh or to Nigeria or to uh, Iraq, what do you think you would have to do? Not only do you need to have a solid understanding of what the Word of God says, you have to have an understanding of the language, the culture, and the history of the people that you're going to. If you go to India and you say that Jesus Christ is God, and you haven't properly set up the framework, they're just going to take Jesus and put him in there with all of their other gods. They're just going to absorb him into their polytheistic framework because you haven't taken time to recognize and understand how they think and how they operate. And this is true in America because as believers today, we are missionaries, we're evangelists to just as pagan a culture as any pagan culture in India, Nigeria, wherever. People, kids who grow up today don't even know who Jesus is. You can ask school teachers and, and uh, uh, school teachers often discover their children who say, well, what, what's Christmas all about? Well, who is Jesus? We never heard of him before. So we don't have a culture anymore in this country that has a Christian foundation. So if you're going to talk to somebody about the gospel and explain to them the gospel, you better have some kind of understanding of where they're coming from. So when you say that Jesus is God, what are they hearing? A rabbit trail application of the principle where it says, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. This passage isn't talking about, you know, somebody who's sitting around wringing their hands over some sort of uh, uh, self-pity. They are indeed going through physical adversity, and that's what the word Pasco refers to. It refers to physical adversity or mental adversity as a result of mental attitude sins, of anxiety, worry, uh, consternation over certain events. So the word could refer to physical uh, pressure or it could refer to some sort of mental or emotional pressure. And then the Lord says, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So at this point we learn that there is, in fact, physical suffering, physical adversity on the horizon. The devil refers to Satan, another term for Satan, uh, Diabolos, the accuser. Now, is the devil the one who is directly, immediately, personally going to throw them into prison? No. The Roman soldiers are going to come and they're going to arrest them and they're going to throw them into prison. Why is it the devil? It's a recognition that behind the whole system of opposition to the expansion of the gospel, opposition to Christianity, opposition to the church is the world system, the cosmic system, and at the head of the cosmic system is Satan. And Satan works intermediately through various agencies, whether it's demonic agencies or whether it's human agencies. Satan works through secondary and tertiary means, so it is fair and accurate to say, well, the devil's behind it. I mean, that's exactly what the Scripture is saying. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. It's a recognition that ultimately, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood. We wrestle not with with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. In other words, the ultimate battle isn't with human beings. It's not with those who individual human beings who disagree with us politically, who are on the other side of the aisle from us politically. It's not from those uh, individuals who are uh, personally in opposition to Christianity and their ranks increase every month. 
It is behind, it is a recognition of the angelic conflict that behind those physical opponents is a spiritual reality and it's a recognition of the angelic conflict and demonic opposition that is arrayed against every believer and against the expansion of the church and the, and the expansion of the gospel. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And the Greek word there for testing is perazo. It's the second person plural, eris, passive, uh, subjunctive. And this indicates the potential in testing. And every believer is going to go through various tests. Tests are the way in which that God uses to advance the believer. It's an opportunity to apply doctrine. And so we're going to go through various tests. Now, if you think about Scripture, there are various tests that we see in Scripture. There's a test in the Garden of, uh, uh, in the Garden of Eden. I'll put that back on the board. Some people are still writing. Put that up on the screen. The first test is in the Garden of Eden. There's a test of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For Adam and Eve, are you going to eat or not eat? That's the first test, and they fail the test. The next time we have a mention of a test in Scripture, although there are many tests, the next mention of a test has to do with the that God is going to test Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, which means he's going to evaluate Abraham's faith. And he tells him to take his son, his only son Isaac, to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him to God. And that was a test of his faith. And Abraham went, trusting God. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he trusted the fact that if Isaac died... God could bring him back to life. So that shows Abram has a tremendous amount of doctrine in his soul so that he knows what God has promised him regarding the seed and regarding Isaac, that it was in through Isaac that the seed would be developed. He, would, he knew that since Isaac had not had any children yet, that even if he took Isaac's life on the altar, God, being faithful to his promise, would have to bring Isaac back to life in order to fulfill his promise so that Abraham trusted God. That was a test. Then the Jews are tested in the wilderness at Meribah, and, and they, grump and they, they, they grumble and they gripe and they complain about the food that they have. And, you know, it's interesting how many times in the Scripture that there's a test related to food. Now, we could really have fun with this if I were going to preach. We could, we could have a lot of fun with this. You know, God, the first test, Garden of Eden, had to do with food. Then um, we have another example of a testing regarding food. In, in Genesis chapter 12, as soon as Abraham comes into the land, what happens? There's a famine. It's a test related to food. And then you have a test related to food in the wilderness with the children of Israel, and they don't have any food, and so they want to go back to the leeks and the garlics, uh, the leeks and the garlic of, of Egypt. So they're tested related to food. And then you uh, go on through the Scripture, and you get up into the Gospels, and Jesus goes out into the wilderness, and he fast for, 20, for 40 days while he's out in the wilderness. And the first test that comes along has to do with turning the stones into food. And then you get into uh, Acts, and you have a first problem when the, the church begins to expand to the Gentiles, and, of course, they're not following the dietary laws of the Jews or many of the other laws, and so the apostles come back and report to Jerusalem about the expansion of the gospel to the, to the uh, Gentiles, and there's this huge debate that goes on back and forth about... Uh, what are we going to do with these Gentiles? And when it came right down to it, they said, okay, they've got to avoid sexual immorality and they can't eat food sacrificed to idols. And so what problem do we get into in Corinthians is that they're eating food that's sacrificed to idols. And so there's a tremendous amount of testing in the Scripture related to food because food is such a physical 
reality in terms of our own self-discipline and ability to to manage and control our appetite. That And the message seems to be if you can't manage to discipline yourself in terms of your physical appetite in, ter- in relation to obedience to God, then maybe that says something about our ability to discipline ourselves in relationship to spiritual things in other areas. But see, if I continue to teach about that, I'd just be stepping on my own toes, so we're just going to, to move on. But that will give you something to think about during the, the coming week. There are all kinds of tests There are all kinds of tests in the Scripture. Now, you see, I'm already losing my organization here simply because I can't read my notes, I can't see anything, so I'm just just flying by the seat of my pants in my own memory. Testing is crucial to an understanding of, of the Word. Now, if we go on to the next clause in verse 10... We're told he's about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, you'll have tribulation ten days. I talked about this last week, and that there's several interpretations of this. Some people take it ten, ten different cycles of persecution during the period of the Roman Empire, uh, up until the time that uh, Constantine became the emperor. That violates the basic principle of literal interpretation, and I gave this to you last time. We ended with this. And I wanted to review this so you could get it written down. This is one of the better definitions of literal interpretation that I've ever seen. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, make no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its ordinary, usual, literal meaning. Unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicates clearly otherwise. Let's break that down a little bit. When the plain sense of Scripture, that means take words in terms of their normal, historical, grammatical meaning. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, if you can look at the passage and understand what it says in terms of the normal meaning of the word, the normal literal use, then don't try to make it mean something else. Make it, in other words, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, make no other sense. Don't try to make some other meaning out of it. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't recognize that there are figures of speech in the Bible. We use figures of speech all the time, but figures of speech have a literal meaning. For example, when Jesus talks about the fact that he is the door to the sheep pen, I am the door, we know he is not a door, but there is something literal that he's saying. That is that he is the entry point. So even though metaphor is used and similes are used and other figures of speech are used, they still have a literal uh, meaning that we can, we can understand. And by that I don't mean some sort of... Uh, uh, that Jesus is literally a door. So he says, when you eat my flesh, he's not talking about, this is the confusion with uh, the Roman Catholic Mass. doesn't mean literally eating his flesh. He is using that in a standard idiomatic representation, those who are receiving me into themselves. And so it is a literal picture of the reception or acceptance of something into the person. So the definition goes on to read, When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, make no other sense, therefore take every word at its ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context. Now that means that you have to study the whole context. Are we talking about poetry? First of all, you have to understand the category of the literature. Is it poetry? Is it history? Is it epistle? Just what's the category? Because in poetry, you have a more fluid understanding of the meaning of words. And, of course, that's not the context here. Uh, Unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages. And so you do a comparison, and every place that you have numbers associated with days, it's they're literal 24-hour days. They are not periods of time. You run into that same problem in Genesis chapter 1. And the big debate is, are those literal 24-hour days of creation, or are they broader periods of time? 
But when you have numerals associated, or, uh, numerals associated with the Hebrew word yom for day, it always means a literal 24-hour day. So when you study uh, the facts in, in the immediate context, studying the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicates otherwise. So axiomatic and fundamental truths are looking at basic doctrinal principles that are in other parts of the Scripture. So when we compare that, we see that when we come across a phrase that you will be tested, you will have tribulation, you will have adversity for ten days, that obviously this was a literal 10, 24-hour day period that was yet future to them at that time, but has subsequently been passed. Now, we don't know when that was. We don't have to know when it was to know that it was true and that it happened and that it was fulfilled. The thing that we have to focus on is the next clause, which says, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. The issue is not how long their suffering happened. We know it was ten days. But that in the midst of adversity, even if it costs you your life, the issue is to be faithful to the Word of God, to continue to apply the principles of the Word, even if it costs you everything that you have, no matter what the torture may be, no matter how horrible the circumstances may become. And I'm often reminded of the tremendous suffering that took place during the brief reign of Mary Tudor in England during the uh, 17th century. She was called Bloody Mary. And the reason that she was called Bloody Mary was because uh, her brother who had preceded her, who I believe was Edward, uh, I can't remember the number now, I think it was Edward VI, and he was the son of Henry VIII, and he was a Protestant, and he reigned for less than two years. And so he moved the Church of England that had separated from Rome under Henry. He moved them firmly into the Protestant camp and virtually outlawed Roman Catholicism. And so when Mary became queen, because she had been raised as a Roman Catholic, she reversed the law, and now her, she saw her role as destroying this evil heresy of Protestantism, and those who were advocates of the Protestant gospel were called gospelers. And so she saw it as her role. To, so she had all the, the uh, Anglican uh, priests and theologians who advocated that uh, pernicious Lutheran doctrine of justification by faith alone arrested and tortured. And one of the men that was arrested and thrown into prison and tortured was the Archbishop of Canterbury, whose name was Thomas Cramner. And Thomas Cramner, uh, under torture, finally recanted of his uh, belief in justification by faith alone, and he signed a recantation. And, of course, after he did that under duress, and after the, the uh, after it was over with, uh, he was promised that if he would recant, they would uh, not kill him, they would not take destroy his family, and so he finally uh, signed the document and recanted of his faith, and then they went back on the word. They said, "Well, it took you too long, and we're still going to take your life." So he recanted of his recantation, and in one of the most dramatic scenes of all of church history. Uh, he was burned at the stake, as they did out on a field, a Smithfield, and there were over 300 Protestants were burned on those bloody fields. And as Cramner was burned alive at the stake for his faith, he held out his hand in the flames, that the hand that had signed the recantation. And as the flames burned his hand and rose toward heaven, he sang hymns to the glory of God and witnessed to the grace of God until his breath finally left his body. And that is just and there were hundreds who did that during those tumultuous years of the Protestant Reformation. This is the kind of circumstance that we're talking about here. But it doesn't just apply to that sort of adversity and that kind of, of uh, 
testing in our life. It applies to even the small aggravations that we face just living in the cosmic system. Testing is the means of growth, James 1-2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And literally the word there is the noun form of the verb that we have in the other passage. This is the noun perasmos, meaning various tests. Because you know that the testing of your faith, and there the word faith should be translated doctrine. It's not the act of trusting, but it's the the doctrine that you're trusting. See, the Lord teaches us. This is a process of sanctification. The means of sanctification, the power of sanctification, comes from two sources. The Word of God and the Spirit of God. When we are in fellowship with God, the Spirit of God is able to work with the Word of God in our life to produce spiritual growth. When we sin, we talk about being out of fellowship and no longer filled with the Spirit. Literally, that phrase in Ephesians 5.18 means to be filled by means of the Spirit. What are we being filled with? We're being filled with the Word of God. But when we're out of fellowship, that filling ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is key to spiritual growth, gets stifled or quenched. That's why Paul says not to quench the Holy Spirit. When we sin, we're quenching the Holy Spirit, shutting down that sanctification ministry so that spiritual growth won't take place. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit isn't working in our lives. He is in other areas that are not sanctification areas. So spiritual growth can't take place until we confess our sins, we recover the filling of the operation of the Holy Spirit, and then we begin to grow again. So God teaches us, and then he gives us a test to apply that doctrine. And we have all kinds of pop tests. Life is an open book test for the believer, because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and then James 1.4 says, But let endurance have its perfect or maturing work, that you may be perfect, that is mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now these three verses are, are, are a great summary of how the believer grows. And it is through testing. We learn under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And we grow and we mature as we are tested. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ had to go through. Let's skip a slide ahead. In Ephesians, I mean Hebrews 2.10, we read, for It was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory, that is, believers in the church age, to make the captain of their salvation, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, perfect. That's that same word we saw in James 1, 2 through 4, uh, teleos, to make them perfect or mature through suffering. See, the Lord Jesus Christ had to go through the same process. This, we, we often think that sanctification has something to do with dealing with sin. But see, sanctification is not something that is de- just simply dealing with sin. Because the Lord Jesus Christ had to go through the process of sanctification in his humanity. So sanctification doesn't have so much to do with getting rid of the sin in our life as learning to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's why in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the emphasis is on loving God with the entirety of our being. So that whether you are in Deuteronomy in the Mosaic Law, or whether you are a disciple receiving instruction from Jesus the night before he went to the cross, in both cases we're told, if you love me, you will keep my word. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so the point is that we are to learn how to love God, and we do it by learning to keep his commandments. Now, that does not necessitate the idea of sin. In the garden, Adam and Eve had to grow spiritually. They had to be sanctified. They had to learn to obey the Lord. And the point of testing was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. He is perfect. He is sinless. He is born without a sin nature. He's born without the imputation of Adam's original sin. He has to learn to obey God fully in his humanity. That is how he grew to maturity. So he goes through suffering. It's the same word here that we find over in our passage in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, that the captain of their salvation is made mature through suffering. Then we look at another verse in Hebrews 2.18, which says, For in that he himself has suffered. And this isn't simply talking about the suffering, the, the physical suffering he endured before he went to the cross. This is talking about all of the suffering that he went through in the entirety of his life in his humanity. He Just think, here's the perfect Son of God, the sinless Son of God, who is perfect righteousness and can't have anything to do with unrighteousness, and he has to live for 33 years in the cosmic system. So we think we get a little aggravated when we have to deal with injustice. Just imagine what the circumstances were that our Lord had to deal with living in a cosmic system that was particularly dominated by the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. In verse 18 of Hebrews 2 we read, For in that he himself has suffered, what? Being, and it should be translated, tested, he is able to aid those who are tested. Now this word perasmos that is translated testing really has two connotations. Here's the noun form, P-E-I-R-A-S-M-O-S. It has an objective sense and it has a subjective sense. The objective sense is the idea of a test. When it's applied subjectively and includes an inner attraction of us, or from us on our part, that's when it has the idea of temptation. I always like to use a food analogy here. If anybody who's ever been on a diet understands this, once you get rocking and rolling on your diet and you're starting to see those pounds drop off and you're really feeling good and doing great, and if you've just... Uh, had a meal where your appetite now has is, is, uh, been satisfied, somebody comes to you and offers you a piece of, of your favorite dessert or whatever it is, baked potato, whatever it is that's your, your particular weakness, you may not, if you've just eaten and your appetite's satisfied, there may be no inner attraction to that. I mean, you're rocking and rolling, you're upbeat, and uh, you, you feel good about what you've accomplished, and so it's real easy to say, no, I'm not interested. I mean, there's just no attraction whatsoever. But let's say you had some things interfered in your schedule that day, and, and uh, you're maybe a little tired of the fact that you've just been eating the same old cardboard for rabbit food for two or three weeks, and, and somebody comes up and you missed lunch, and now it's 2 o'clock and you're really hungry, and you get a somebody offers you that same piece of chocolate cake and ice cream or baked potato or pasta or whatever it is, now there's this inner attraction. Now there's a real test. See, before it wasn't much of a test. It was a test, and you pass it, but it wasn't much of one. Now it's a real test. Now there's that inner attraction. That's the difference between the objective test that the Lord faced. He didn't have a sin nature. So there's no inner attraction to anger, to sin, just as there was with Adam. Adam had no inner attraction. He didn't have that inner pull. That's why the two tests are, 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 are comparable to each other. Adam failed, but the Lord in his humanity passes those tests. The problem that we have is we've got that sin nature in us that is always attracted like a magnet to iron filings. We're just always attracted to that sin, so that makes sanctification more difficult for us because we're not just dealing with the fact that we're learning how to learn to obey God, but we have this inner enemy that is drawing us in just the opposite direction. But the model that we have comes from the Lord in that he himself has suffered, he's faced every category of adversity, being tested, He is able to aid those who are tested.
tested. The Lord Jesus Christ is able to aid us because He has gone through everything as well. He is not just some abstract deity who hasn't had contact with humanity. And this is why Hebrews 4.15 comes along and says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tested as we are, yet without sin. So the Lord Jesus Christ had to go through testing, passed the testing, and matured as a believer. He was, he was per, made perfect or made mature through suffering. So we go through the same process that the Lord Jesus Christ went through. And that's what we see at, in, as the background for understanding verse 10. That we will, just as they had adversity for maturity, so we do. But there is the promise of a reward. There is incentive there. Be faithful until death. Just as who? The Lord was faithful until death. That relates back to the second title given in verse 8. He is the one who was dead and came to life. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. And we will begin next time by looking at the crowns, the rewards that are promised to believers. And then we will get into verse 11, which really gives us a whole new level of insight into the kind of uh, privileges that are going to be granted believers in the millennial kingdom. Verse 11 reads, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, that's the victorious believer once again in the spiritual life in this age, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, I'm going to leave you with a hook. The the victorious believer won't be hurt by the second death. What in the world does that mean? Does that mean that the loser believer is hurt by the second death? The one who fails is hurt by the second death? Well, what's the second death? The second death is the lake of fire. So is there some implication here that those who are not victorious believers will be hurt by the lake of fire? How in the world could that be? And it is a fascinating answer and a tremendous study. So we will get there next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to be encouraged by your word, to understand how you have designed our growth, our sanctification, that you use the Holy Spirit along with your word to give us the information that we need in order to handle the tests, the adversities of life so that we can advance and grow. And not only did you give us your word and that you have provided us with your spirit, but you gave us a Savior who went through the same process in his humanity that he was tested in all points as we are, that he uh, was made mature through suffering. He went through the testing. He passed in the same way that we do by taking your word uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit and applying it to those tests. We pray that we may be challenged and encouraged by those things. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here this evening that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would... Uh, make, take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. It is simply a matter of believing or trusting that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that by believing you have eternal life, that he paid the penalty for your sin so that there is nothing you can do to add to his work on the cross. It is faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we thank you for all that you've provided for us, and we pray that you would make us mindful of the things that we have learned this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.